This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And that's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And today our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of an oil man out of Midland, Texas, named Jim Henry. In 1984, all the bankers and all the consultants were predicting that the price of oil was going to continue to go on up. It was about $30 a barrel, and it was going to go up to $100 per barrel, except a consultant called Henry Grappi. And Grappi predicted that it was going to tank. And instead of trying to predict what the price would be, I said, what would happen if the price goes up? And I'd say, well, I'd be a lot richer. What if it goes down? Well, I'd be broke. So I better prepare for if it goes down. I don't want to be broke. I've got a saying in there that says, I'd rather be around than rich. (laughs) (laughs) So I sold half of our oil, and then 1986, it went through the floor. Everybody was wrong except Henry Grappi. So we were able to withstand that. We had 30 people in our company. We had to let 15 go because we couldn't afford them. Now, the emotional toll was terrible. Firing good people that have helped our company a lot and then have to go out and try to find a job. There were no jobs in the oil industry. And I didn't think that was very ethical for us to do it, but it's kind of like throwing people out of a lifeboat to keep the lifeboat afloat. And we vowed from that day to this that we would never, ever let an employee go because we didn't have enough money. Then when we hired a consultant named Walter Scott, and he said something that revolutionized our company. He said, Jim, when you're doing well, pay your employees more. (laughs) I said, that that makes sense. (laughs) So we started an incentive compensation program. And then when our company does well, our net worth increases. The employees get a quarter of that increase. Then we have 75% of the increase to help continue to grow the company. So we made lots of millionaires, probably about 50, I guess. It's really rewarding. See, that means some people in our accounting department have lake houses. So (laughs) that's... (laughs) We try to make sure that everybody be taken care of, not just the top people. So I asked Jim, what are their bonuses typically like? Probably twice their salary. I mean, get their salary plus another. Uh, In the really good years, they'll get twice their salary and bonuses and people (coughs) pay off their house. Jim then turned to his team member and asked her this. Have you all paid up your house yet? She then nodded her head up and down. (laughs) My father was uh, born in Marion, Kentucky, and he, in high school, read a book called Soldiers of Fortune by Richard Harding Davis. And it was about mining engineers that went to South America. So he decided in high school that he's going to become a mining engineer and go to South America. So he actually did that. Uh, and he, nobody from Marion, Kentucky had ever gone to college. So that was something very new for the whole city. When he was getting ready to go to college, he worked all summer long for a farmer to pay his way through college. 
And at the end of the summer, the farmer said, I'm sorry, I don't have any money, I can't pay you. He got paid zero. A lot of people would have taken that, well, it's God's will that I not go to college. But he didn't, he, very stubborn. So he started college broke, borrowed money from an uncle of his and uh, bought a paper route and threw papers all through college. He got his engineering degree, he went to Columbia, where I was born, in the jungles of Columbia, way up in the Andes. We were out dredging all the rivers for gold and platinum. We went swimming in a local pond that had a waterfall. Then we found panthers, but they had a den really close to where we were swimming, so that was interesting. It was an exciting place to be. Yeah, that's uh, one way to look at it. Jim could have died. I was five years old when we left to go back to the States. And we always went to church and liked the singing in the church. And, and I got to really like the preacher's daughters, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> and he dated a few, which must have kept Jim on the straight and narrow. Uh, well, no, not necessarily. <laughs> I was a junior in high school and I had two years of paper out. I made about $100 a month and saved most of it to go to college. I had about 130 people on my paper route, rated in one to 10, and 10 being great and one being terrible. And you had the great ones and you had the terrible ones. It was, it was always a uh, spectrum. I guess my worst one was one guy that I collected by the week, and he owed me for five weeks. And he said, come back tomorrow and I'll pay you. I came back tomorrow and he had moved. So. <laughs> So that would be a one. It taught you a lot about people collecting for the paper. When I graduated from college, Bob Landenberger and I were working for a solar oil company and their primary investor went broke. So I was without a job and Bob Landenberger was out of job and we got together and we said, uh, why don't we start our own company? And we said, yeah, we could. That'd be, that'd be a good thing. So I went to Paula, my wife, and asked her, what do you think? She said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Let's do it. When we started, we had a plan that would go on a half a sheet of paper. One, become consultants, till we could become all operators, and two, to become an oil company where we had working interest. So we went out, we had no money, had no savings, and he had uh, six kids and I had two kids. And we had absolutely no money to start out with and no way to get any money. If we don't make money, we don't eat. That's pretty rigid. That's a lot of pressure. But we kind of enjoyed it. It was kind of fun. Adventures. <laughs> and what a voice you're hearing. And it's not just a well, it's just not a Midland, Texas voice. It's an American voice. It's an American entrepreneur's voice. And so many of those voices sound the same. More of Jim Henry's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return for the story of Jim Henry. And, you know, we had talked about that voice of the American entrepreneur earlier and just how much it pained him to lay somebody off and how he vowed to never do that again. And by the way, I just love that line, I'd rather be around than be rich. And that's, uh, it's true. And so let's go back to West Texas and to the story of Jim Henry. We like to hit singles and doubles. We don't go for home runs, except when you get a slow, fat one right over the plate, knock it out of the park. And we did. We have always been drilling in the Sprayberry Formation. Sprayberry is the name of a certain level of rock and sand below the Earth's surface in the Permian Basin. For 50, 60 years or so, we drill down through the wolf camp. Another level of rock formation and yet another interesting choice in name. Which is below the Sprayberry. And we would get very little oil out at all. You get a barrel or two out and then it wouldn't produce any more. It was too tight. The ground was too tight. It wasn't permeable enough for a lot of oil to flow out of it. Even after what they call fracking, it, shooting a mixture of water, sand, and chemicals down the well to break up the rock. It wasn't until George Mitchell came along and figured out how to frack these sands. Mitchell, a then 78-year-old entrepreneur, was just trying to keep his company alive. And his team had this crazy idea to try a different mixture that was mostly water and give it a special friction reducer that allows it to be pumped at a much higher pressure. What they decided to call slick water fracturing. Everyone thought it was crazy because the water would just bounce with crazy speed off the rock and shoot back up, flooding out the well. But it worked like crazy. The slick water seemed to go out in every direction in the rock, creating complex mini networks of cracks and enabling the gas to flow to the surface. It took 18 years for him to figure it out, but he's the one that did it. He needs to get more credit for that. In 2000, virtually no one knew what Mitchell's team was up to, and those that did still thought they were crazy. <laughs> but an unknown guy named Dennis Phelps was also open to trying anything. He had talked to George Mitchell, and he knew the Mitchell technique. Phelps was working for an energy company called Arco and was just starting to have some success with slick water experiments in the Wolfberry, the combined nickname for the Sprayberry and Wolf Camp formations, until he was told to stop. In about 2000, the Arco sold out to BP, and BP decided they didn't want to do the wolf bear. Which led to Dennis Phelps deciding to take an early retirement package. Disheartened, he moved across the state to East Texas and hoped to start a consulting business. A year into it, it wasn't working out so well, and so he called a friend from his old church in Midland, Dennis Johnson, who just happened to be the president of Henry Petroleum. Johnson decided to give Phelps $500 a day to consult on a rather humdrum project. But a year goes by and Henry Petroleum is offered the opportunity to drill on a former 
Arco lease, only two to three miles from where Phelps had his experiments. And so they called him in. And we got Dennis Phelps to show us how he did it with Arco. And so we did it that way. And then we got better and better at it. We drilled it two wells, 16 miles apart. And they both turned out really good wells. Typically, when you're outlying the boundaries of an oil field, it's a lot smaller. One miler is the most, so we had a huge field. At 16 miles wide, Jim estimated that it had about 3 billion barrels of oil in it, which would have made it the largest discovery in the area in 50 years. And we thought that maybe the whole Midland Basin would be good for the Wolfberry. So we started branching out, drilling in different places, and it all turned out good. And so they wanted more land in the area to explore. And they had to do it all in secret so that their competitors wouldn't catch on. They weren't even allowed to tell their closest family and friends about their new endeavor. Geologists and engineers were told to keep maps and well logs locked in their desk drawers, only to be taken out when needed. And Jim's seven so-called landmen and seven freelancers went out pouring over deed records in county courthouses, hunting down the names of the landowners in the area, and had to convince them to lease the mineral rights below their land. If there was something there, the landowner would get a nice piece of the action too, 25% of all oil and gas revenue from their land. And they got a lot of land. We acquired 330,000 acres, leased it, a tremendous amount. That's most amount I've ever heard anybody leasing. That's about 20 square miles. And then we drilled on it. Nobody believed us. They couldn't believe that we were actually making really good wells. And plus, we put it in Sprayberry Fields. So people said, oh, Jim's just drilling Sprayberry wells. They're not very good. They didn't know it was a, a new technique, a new way of doing it. We were making a lot of money, and they didn't know it. So for three years, we had it all to ourselves. Now, well, when I drilled two wells 16 miles apart, we discovered over a billion barrels of oil, which is a tremendous amount of oil. And I said it was going to be about three or four billion barrels of oil come out of this field. And I was wrong. It's about 30 or 40 billion barrels of oil that's going to come out of the field. And we had 10 rigs running at one time and 100 people, and we said, we don't like big. I didn't know the names of all the people in our company, so we decided to sell. So we did. We sold out to Concho, and we started a foundation where we can give back to the city that gave us so much. The mission of the Henry Foundation is refreshing for how short, simple, and to the point it is. Focusing resources to change lives. That's it. It says it all. Let's see, focusing resources to change lives, five. I believe that you should talk in five words or less. And whenever I talk to the Lord, he's very direct and doesn't speak in very many words. 
But the idea is uh, stitching time saves nine. You put fences at the top of a cliff to prevent Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, campfires. Those people prevent boys and girls from going astray. And instead of paying for an ambulance, because ambulances are extremely expensive, you can save 10 lives at the top of the hill, and so you don't have to do all this ambulance at the bottom of the hill. Jim could have held on to his discovery for longer and potentially made more money from it, but the price of oil was at the high price of $145 a barrel, and he wanted to make sure that his employees would benefit from the fruits of a high sales price that this would generate. What ended up being $584 million. The top 20 probably all got over a million dollars each. And the rest of them got to three or four times their yearly salary. So we made a lot of people happy. when. <laughs> Plus, for Jim, working was never really about making money, at least not in the way that you might think. We weren't really interested in making a bunch of money, but uh, I'll take that back. I was interested in making a bunch of money because the foundation can use the money. We started back over with 20 people and then got it going again and did very well in two more years, sold out again. Then from then, it was hard to get back in after that. And we finally got back in and now we're going very strong. We have about 50 people right now. What we're doing in the industry is, is providing cheap fuel to heat homes and, and provide fuel for cars to run. We're making oil cheaper. It's now cheaper than it was for the last 20, 30 years. And when we come back, you'll hear more about Jim Henry, this Texan's life, an American life, a classic American dreamer's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now for the final portion of oil man Jim Henry's remarkable American Dreamer story. Jim Henry is all about adventure. Love the, uh, the quote from Helen Keller, security is merely a superstition. It doesn't exist in nature. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So I had to ask him, what's your best? adventures. Look behind you. <laughs> behind me was a wall that was full of pictures of Jim's greatest adventures. One is me repelling off of the Wilco building, which is 22 stories. Uh, another is me hang gliding uh, over in Cabo San Lucas, I think. And then every five years on my birthday, I jump out of a plane. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've done that when I was 75 and 80. Now I'm going to do it when I'm 85, which would be uh, about a year away. So, <laughs> the most uh, thrilling adventure was jumping off of a 140-foot bridge, bungee jumping off a 140-foot bridge, and uh, I have a fear of heights. So there I am, standing on the edge of that, holding on to the back end, and he, he said, "You can let go now." <laughs> So I, that's it if I'm going to do it. I, I also have a background, some in the theater. And in the theater, you learn how to get rid of your fears. And uh, you, you just go at it as hard as you possibly can go. So I dived as hard as I could. I, I jumped as hard as I could. And it turned out great. So. Jim got this sense of adventure from his old man. In South America, he would tell us these willy-nilly stories about a little dog called willy-nilly, and, uh, and we'd lay in bed. It's always bedtime stories. And one day, Jim wasn't the one inside of the bed. He was the one on top of it doing the storytelling. I told willy-nilly stories to my kids, and I added a character. Uh, willy-nilly's a dog, and I added a rabbit, Thumper, that is his best friend. Don't remember any of the stories. I made him up at the time. I just make up a different one every time. Just ask them, what do they want to hear about? And so we'll make up a story about that. So then I started telling my stories to my grandkids. And Jim compared his storytelling craft to the songwriting craft of Buddy Holly, who had a live audience. And he'd write his songs, and the audience didn't like it. He would change it to make it better. Well, that's what I would do, too. If the, the kids started going to sleep, I would uh, <laughs> I'd, uh, make it more, more exciting. <laughs> I have one, uh, Justin, uh, he's, he's now 18, but uh, he'd go to sleep most every time, <laughs> regardless. <laughs> and my cousin said, where can I buy some of these willy-nilly stories? And I thought, well, maybe we should do something about that. So I started uh, tape recording the stories to a live audience. Now, I'd tell a story based on what they wanted to hear. 175 stories. That Jim's recorded and has been able to turn into five books so far. He's got plenty more material to choose from for the next ones. And I've got this little feeling that Jim will be recording some more too. We hope to maybe get 20 books at least. We can make two books a year. So that'd be another 10 years. Uh, I won't be around probably, but. <laughs> I happen to love adventure stories. And I see every children's adventure show I can see. I think Tangles is the best that's come out in the last five years or so. But I just love them and I plagiarize wherever I possibly can. So. <laughs> you go into a different world like uh, C.S. Lewis, he goes through a closet, a wardrobe, and then a train station maybe. And I, I go through it by using a tornado sometimes. I go through it by falling down a hole like you do in Alice in Wonderland. You can go down into a mine or a cave. I have grandsons uh, that are just addicted to their iPhone and iPad or whatever. They're, and that's what they do. They come home from school and they just sit down and play on that. Uh, and I think they need uh, more adventure. They need to get out and get more into it. And 
Reading books is a good way to do it too. A good way to inspire your own adventures and a great way to learn character through the stories. We try to make them subtle, not too in your face sort of thing. Never lying, never deceiving people. Always trying to do the right thing. It gets across in the books, I think, I hope, but it's more of, a, of an attitude kind of than telling each part, don't lie, don't the Ten Commandments and everything like that. Just like how they're having fun doing something right. At the time of our interview, Jim Henry was 84 years old, and he's still working full days. I work from about nine to five or so, something like that. I'm working on willy-nilly books. I'm working on our company. What's our company going to be doing? One of the reasons that Jim can keep working like this is his health. He's very intentional about it, and he encourages his whole team to as well, paying for everyone's gym memberships and for his top executives to receive health examinations and guidance from our friends at the Cooper Clinic, whose founder, Ken Cooper, invented aerobics and catalyzed this little thing we now know well as jogging. Oh. Cooper has kept me on the track of uh, keeping up my exercise regime. I want to keep our team in good health. And they go to Cooper Clinic and they tell them, well, you've got to lose 30 pounds, so, <laughs> and they do. I probably average five hours a week, five days a week, uh, an hour each time. I do swimming a couple of times, I play tennis once. I do the Swin Aerodyne about a couple of times, and sometimes I think I may overdo it. I hope not, but uh, my wife says I overdo it, so I do strength training twice a week, which I forgot to mention in the other things. I do push-ups and chin-ups and pull-ups and crunches and, let's see, bridges and uh, uh, what's the other thing, and bridges, and uh, but uh, I do wall sets uh, and do all of those and so I used to do 15 chin-ups now I can only do five uh, because sometime along the way I, I, I just didn't keep it up but uh, I'll be up to 10 pretty soon I think. <laughs> <laughs> Will Jim Henry ever stop working out or working? No, no. Uh, I probably will not be able to work uh, after a while. Uh, and then I'll have to do something. Uh, but uh, it's too much fun. And what does Jim's wife Paula think about all of her husband's activity? Well, she said, uh, I married you for better or for worse, but not for lunch. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so she's glad I go to, go to work. <laughs> And great job, as always, on that, Alex. And by the way, those stories that Jim Henry was talking about, we've got copies here at the studio, and they're so good. The artwork is beautiful. The stories, well, he's right. Jim is right. Kids need to have more adventures in their lives. WillyNillyStories.com will inspire that way of thinking. WillyNillyStories.com. And Jim's story reminds us of 
Well, the very first American Dreamers stories we had done here on Our American Stories, and that was the Home Depot story, the founding of this great American company. And that was Bernie Marcus, Ken Langone, and Arthur Blank, and all three of them. Well, the jobs they created, the tax base they created, the employees they took care of, the number of millionaires they created. And that's what Job Creators Network is all about, helping push policies that help small business owners grow their businesses into bigger ones. Jim Henry's story, an American dreamer's story, a Texas story, here on Our American Stories. And we're back with Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about families on this show. And today, we bring you some stories from Mark Oppenheimer, whose piece in the Wall Street Journal really caught our attention. It's titled, Yes, We Really Do Want to Have a Fifth Child. Mark, a few generations ago, a family having four or more kids would have been nothing remarkable. But now, that's increasingly rare. As you wrote, quote, In 1976, 40% of mothers aged 40 to 44 had four or more children. Today, only 13% do. And when it comes to mothers with graduate degrees, like your wife, only 8%. Talk a little about how you and your bride decided that you wanted a big family. When we first met, before we were even dating, My wife and I were talking one time, and it came up just naturally that I thought four would be a nice number of children to have. And and I'm one of four children. I'm the eldest of four children in the family that I come from. So that always seemed perfectly normal. And then my wife, who's one of two, said, oh, yeah, I always thought my family seemed a little small. I thought it'd be nice if there were three or four of us. So we both had a sense that four was a, a nice number of children to have. And we were very lucky, and we we had four children in the first 10 years uh, of our marriage. Actually, I guess we had four children in the first eight years of our marriage. And then um, a couple years ago, we were talking, and I forget who said it first, but one of us said, wouldn't it be fun to have one more? And the other one said, yeah, that'd be fun. And so then we did. And I think it was not something that we interrogated too deeply. It was not, we didn't go and check our bank account. We knew that we would be as... um, as as impoverished uh, with five, we would be we would be it, it, you know either way we weren't taking fancy vacations with four kids or five. It, it, you know once you're up to four kids and and you're on the salary of a, of a writer uh, and and uh, you know my wife is is mostly a homemaker though she's a lawyer by training. You know we're not wealthy people. We don't have regular paid childcare. But if you're going to be home with four, you might as well be home with five, and it's one more person to love. So. I don't, have a, I don't have any profound thoughts on it, except we did what we wanted to do. And it's a free country, so we, we were able to do that. Indeed. And, and by the way, you note in the piece, we are not conservative traditionalists, not Orthodox Jews, old school Catholics, or Mormons, nor nope. are we lefty counterculturalists. We have no aversion to birth control, chemical or otherwise. We're pretty basic middle-class HBO watchers. My idea of living on the edge is refusing to give up soda. So so talk about the becauses. One of them that was interesting, you brought up your Jewishness. Talk about that, because I think that's important. I've had conversations with my Jewish friends who said, you know, hey, we're just, we're, we're shrinking in numbers. 
there's debate about Jewish numbers. Uh, there's debate about demography. What is certainly true is that the community of Jews who are not Orthodox or what they call ultra-Orthodox Jews is shrinking. The number of Jews who are Reform or Conservative Jews uh, by denomination is uh, pretty precarious and is, is probably crashing over the next couple of generations. And I do think that for, for Jewry to be a robust uh, community, a robust and diverse community that's not all based in a couple smaller sects. It's auspicious if there are, you know, lots of babies in all of those communities. I wouldn't say that's why we had a fifth child, but right. I take I take some pleasure in the fact. I mean, I, it, it cheers me that there is at least one family, and we do know of others for whom this is a real choice. You know irrespective of some commandment from God not to use birth control, which is not who we are culturally or religiously. This, this for many families, is a delightful way to live, and that the, the community, and, and in our case, we have a lot of identities, Jewish is one, and you know, American is another, but, but speaking of the Jewish community, that it's, um, that it's good for the community to have families of different sizes. But we certainly have plenty of people modeling not having children or having only one or two. And I think it's great if there are models of people having four or five. Indeed. And I think there are some parts of this country where you start walking around and pushing five, six kids, you're going to get some really weird glances. And, and by, by virtue of the opposite, there are some communities in this country where if you're married and you have no kids, you'll get some weird looks. And there were a bunch of other becauses, and this is the answer to why did you have a fifth child? And I'm going to go through a few of them, and I'd love sure. to have you comment. Because every one of our four children has improved my life. Talk about that. Well, that's true. I think that anyone who has any number of children, if, if it's a relatively normally happy family, which means happy sometimes and other times in conflict or fighting or you know having the normal struggles people have. But if you're a relatively normal family, one of the things that's true about having even one child is once the child comes along, within a few weeks or months, you can't imagine your life before that child. They become part of what you're grateful for when you think of your own existence. And for us, and I think for all people who have multiple children, that's as true of the second and third and fourth as it is of the first. I don't think that anyone wants to trade in any one of their children or give back any one of their children. I mean, sometimes you do. Right, sometimes. <laughs> right? sometimes I can tell you, I, you know, I'll send this one away. And, you know, at those times, it's, that's what grandma and grandpa's house is for. You know, there is a kind of logic to the fact that whatever the next child you have is, you will love that child as much as you loved the last one. And so there is a kind of drive to have more, I think. Another because. Because with a big family, I never have to feel guilty about the clutter. <laughs> I forgot I wrote that. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I'm not a super neat and tidy person. And if I had no children, I'd have a lot of clutter, but then I'd be a little bit ashamed of it. <laughs> but with five children, everyone says, oh, of course, you know, how, how could you have a neat house? So it does, it does let you off the hook for some things. I mean, uh, you know, another example of that is if you have one child, you might feel, well, I have to save enough to send this child to college. When you have five children, there's no prayer that I can afford to send them all to college without a lot of financial aid. So there are ways in which taking on more can be liberating. Indeed. And you also wrote this, because I'm scared of being alone. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think most parents, if they're being honest, would say that that's part of why we, we grow our families, whether it's just from one person to two, if you're a single person who has a child or adopts a child, or if it's a couple that has one, all the way up to having eight or nine or ten children, I do think that children are, are hedges against against loneliness. And um, and I'm someone who tends toward loneliness. I'm actually not a great um, I'm not great at being at at solitude. 
some people are. I'm not. I like having people around, and it, it's reassuring to me. So having children around is is very comforting. I mean, they are they are they're children, but they're also companions and friends and and comforters, and I think that's really nice. Because my 11 year old likes poker, and for that she needs more players. <laughs> well, that's and that is true. We've trained up the 10 year old. Our eight year old is not really into poker yet, so we have two more. Anna, who's five, and then the the new boy. We'll get we'll get him there when he's three or four. But if we could have a good five or six person, you know, hold'em game with just our family, that would be a huge win. Yeah, and you're going to have to teach me on this because my 13 year old is a fearless hold'em player because he's always playing with my money. Well, we, you got to play with chips. I mean, you don't don't actually, you know, when he's ready to play with money, you send him out into high school to earn some money. Indeed. Okay, a couple of more becauses. Because when I think of those countries where birth rates are so low that nobody has siblings anymore, I get sad. I do. I do. I think, that's, I think siblinghood is, is wonderful. I was really lucky. I am really lucky to have three siblings, and, um, and it's hard to imagine life without them. They are the people who know you best. They're the only people who know what it is to grow up in your household with your parents, your grandparents, and that's a very special relationship. And I, do, I don't believe that I don't believe what some of my only children friends tell me, which is, oh, well, cousins make up the difference or close friends make up the difference. I don't think it's the same. Absolutely. And because not being inclined to rock climbing, microdosing, or day trading, I need something a little risky. <laughs> uh, yes. I, I, I would say that I, many of my friends have that thing that they do that sets them apart a little bit, especially as we get middle-aged and boring in lots of other ways. And, uh, you know, whether it's some sort of mildly extreme sport or whether it's, you know, gambling, which is not something I do, again, outside of the family uh, poker table. And, uh, but, you know, having a fifth kid strikes people as, as, uh, as a little bit edgy. So I'm, I'm happy to, <laughs> I've got to do something that raises people's eyebrows, right? I, mean, I, don't, I don't wear weird bow ties. So right. <laughs> what am I going to do? What are you going to do? And this could be the best of all of them, I think, because having children has made our marriage stronger. Well, that's true. And I, I you know, how could, I guess there are marriages that are weakened by children. I mean, in our case, in a very kind of prosaic, obvious way, it gives us even more common ground, even more things that we uh, that only we understand about each other, which is to say, being the parent of this child or this one or this one or this one or this one. Um, and look, let's be frank, it's really hard to split up if you're together supporting five kids or even one kid. I mean, I think that I think marriages without children are more likely um, to fail because there's less of a common project and it's easier to separate. Um, that doesn't mean people should have children to, to stay together. I, don't, I think that would be a, a false inference. But, um, but certainly in our case, we feel more unified and like we have more to, that we can only do in the world together because we have children. Well, there's more ties that bind in the end. I mean, infinitely more ties that bind uh, with more kids. Because I'm going to weep like a baby when I drop my youngest daughter for her first day of kindergarten, and it will help if I know... It's not my last first day of kindergarten. Well, that's true. I'm very sappy. So <laughs> every, every milestone pretty much destroys me. So as I, need, I need more milestones coming down the pike. And now, you know, I'm 44 and my son was just born. So, you know, I'll be 62 before we're empty nesters. So by then, maybe I'll be a little bit hardened and, uh, and cynical and able to take it a little bit more. But, uh, but not yet. Well, we want to thank you, Mark, for joining us. Mark's the author of The Wall Street Journal. Let's say yes 
we really do want to have a fifth child. Mark has a PhD in religious studies at Yale. His wife is a lawyer. He's been writing, well, about all kinds of things for places like the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, and Atlantic. Mark Oppenheimer's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and you're listening to the Staple Singers, and it's hard to interrupt this song. And this single, well, one of the most famous of the Staple Singers, and if you ever get a chance, just go on YouTube and watch Mavis do her thing with Pop Staples. It's a beautiful thing. And we thought we'd play this song by the Staple Singers, not as the story of a song, which we love to do here on this show, but because the story we're going to hear is about a stapler. And not just any ordinary stapler. Here's Jesse. A candy apple red swing line stapler plays a prominent role in Office Space, a 1999 dark comedy by Mike Judge about a fictitious Texas software company and the everyday people who work there. I believe you have my stapler. One of those office dwellers is Milton Wadhams, played by one of today's most prolific character actors, Stephen Root. He's an invisible nuisance that must be tolerated because he's a human on the planet, but he takes up space and and he's, he's not a bad human being to them. I don't consider Milton over the top at all. I think it's one of my subtlest roles actually. Even though it's a, a big character, it's, it's done really small. Milton is an overweight, aging nerd with prescription glasses so thick that you can't see his eyes. I don't care if they lay me off either because I told, I told Bill that if they move my desk one more time than then I'm, then I'm quitting. I'm going to quit. And, and I told Dom, too, because they've moved my desk four times already this year, and I used to be over by the window, and I could see the squirrels, and they were married, but then they switched. He devotes his work days to guarding his red swing line against his boss, who is constantly moving his desk and stealing his stapler. Hi, Milton. And, but What's I, happening? I said, Mil, did, we're going to need to go ahead and move you downstairs into storage B. No, we I, I uh, I could have not, some new people coming in, and no, we need all the space we can get. But there's no space. So if you could in, just go ahead and it, pack up your it, stuff it, and move it down there, but, no, that would be terrific. I, I, I was okay. I could stay. It, excuse me. Yeah, I, I believe you have my stapler. 
But Milton Wadhams eventually gets his revenge against the smug boss who takes his stapler away. I set the building on fire. By setting the building on fire. Now, Office Space barely earned back the $10 million it cost News Corp's 20th Century Fox to make the film. But in 2000, when it came out on video, it was clear that the movie was reaching a particular audience. Cubicle-dwelling computer programmers. For months, Swingline fielded demands for that red stapler pouring in by phone and email. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking. Just a moment. There was just a slight little problem. Swingline didn't make bright red staplers. The one in the movie was custom painted by a prop designer. When real-life Milton Wadhamses found out they couldn't buy one from the manufacturer, they simply made their own, creating a thriving black market on eBay for swing lines that were simply spray-painted red. Then, finally, three years after the red stapler buzz began, Swingline began selling a real red stapler, its basic 747 model, now with a new paint job. Office Space has turned out to be one of the more effective, if unusual, recent examples of product placement in films. Now, the movie didn't just spark sales for Swingline, it invented the whole idea of a bright red stapler to begin with. Now, the sleepy Midwestern company that made the first top-loading stapler more than 60 years ago has discovered a new approach to marketing office products to younger generations. Best of all, the Office Space movie plug didn't cost Swingline a single dime. Through the magic of product placement, it's now common for advertisers to have their brands mentioned or used in feature films. Terms of these deals are among Hollywood's most closely guarded secrets. These days, they typically involve advertising or cross-promotion swaps worth millions of dollars. In Swingline's case, though, it was sheer luck, not money, that brought it into office space. I believe you have my stapler. Swingline executives didn't even recognize the marketing opportunity when the movie's producers approached them back in 1999. The company figured its mainstay customers were unlikely to trade up and declined the pitch. Still, the writer and director of Office Space, Mike Judge, best known as the creator of Beavis and Butthead, was determined to keep the red stapler in his film. Swingline did not stand in his way. The new product is a big deal in the stapler community, says Clark Allen, a 29-year-old Dallas web consultant and host of virtualstapler.com, where people exchange stories about staplers and stapler injuries. The red staplers have quickly become the most popular item on the Swingline website, which is the only place you can buy them, $29 a piece. And that is the story of a stapler. Perhaps the most famous stapler there ever was. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. But then they switched from the swing line to the Boston stapler, but I kept my swing line stapler because it didn't bind up as much, and, and I kept the staples for the swing line stapler. Okay, Milton. And, oh, no, it's not okay because if they make me, if they, if they take my, my stapler, then I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I'll set the building on fire. And great job as always, Jesse, and we gotta order a couple of those swing line staplers. The red ones, get on it. And stapler, virtualstapler.com Stapler injuries, stapler stories. Jesse, I think that's a segment. I think that's a segment. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We sublime stuff, silly stuff. We do it all here on the show. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. And please sign up for the podcast. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and tell friends about what we're doing. If you're sick of the yelling and the screaming, the politics, the downers, and just, well, sick of it all. Tune into our show for a little uplift, 
for a little laugh. You'll learn, you'll laugh, you'll think, you'll cry. That's our goal here. Make you feel something. Sometimes you'll learn something. And again, sometimes you'll just get a chuckle out of what we do, we hope. OurAmericanNetwork.org to learn more. In the day, opportunity called people of courage to chase the sun into the plains of the new American frontier. These men and women shaped a nation and birthed a new American mythology. Today, with the passing of time, the myth of the notorious highway robber Black Bart is coming face to face with reality. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of Black Bart. Ralphie's fantasy encounter with Black Bart in the 1983 film A Christmas Story leads one to believe that Black Bart was some desperado. What do we got here, folks? Well, we figure he's Black Bart, uh, Ralph. Well, says me, my trusty old Red Rider carbine action two on the shop range model air rifle. Lucky I got a compass in the stock. Well, I think I better have a look here. No reason. In the 1870s, there was a dime novel that was loosely based on Black Bart's true story. A Christmas Story author, Gene Shepard, read this novel as a kid and included Ralphie's reincarnation of Black Bart as a desperado. Okay, Ralphie, you win this time, but we'll be back! Adios, Bart! Whatever you do, come back! You'll be pushing up daisies! But Black Bart's real story is far more fantastical than Ralphie's imagination. To tell the story of America's most successful and eccentric stagecoach robber is one of America's greatest storytellers and author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Roger McGrath is also a regular on the History Channel. Let's begin with Dr. Roger McGrath and the story of Highwaymen Black Bart. Black Bart was the most successful highwayman in American history. For more than eight years, uh, this would be from 1875 to 1883, he preyed on stagecoaches, robbing 29 of them. No other road agent could match Black Bart's record. Moreover, Black Bart was a gentleman. 
He always treated everyone courteously and took only the express box. He left the passengers untouched. Black Bart probably got away with upwards of $30,000. That would be something like $2 million in today's money. Black Bart's real name was Charles Bowles. He was born on a farm in upstate New York in 1831. His parents were recent immigrants from England. Little is known about his early years other than he grew up as a typical farm boy. At age 18, he and his older brother David left the farm to join the gold rush of 1849. They first prospected on the American River and then throughout the motherload country. Life in the diggings was rugged, and many a prospector died from disease, accident, or gunplay. David Bowles was one of those who met an early end. He grew ill and died in July 1852. Here's Black Bart biographer Gail Jenner. Charles was devastated. He had been the one to truly want to come out to California. He felt guilty. He was a restless soul. That played very heavily into the choices he made later on. Charles continued to prospect, in fact, for another two years. And then he drifted back to the Midwest. In Decatur, Illinois, he met and married a girl named Mary and settled down and began raising a family. When the Civil War erupted, Charles enlisted in the Union Army. For more than three years, he served with distinction. He fought in several major battles and was severely wounded in one of them but returned to fight again. He even served under General Sherman on his brutal march to the sea. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. To march with Sherman's army, you certainly are fit. He was very demanding of his soldiers. And being able to understand what trails will get you where, what trails could be easily ambushed and therefore you set up defenses for them at the proper places. That would be a value to someone who later becomes known as Black Bart. Charles rose to the rank of first sergeant before this last battle and then just before the war ended was commissioned as second lieutenant. After the war his gold fever returned. He left his wife Mary and his daughters in Illinois to go off to the mines of Montana and Idaho on foot. Every so often he sent Mary a letter saying that he'd be on his way home soon. The last letter Mary received came from Silver Bow, Montana in August 1871. Why he stopped writing after that, we don't know. As the months went by with no further word, Mary grew frantic and finally sold the family home to raise money for her search for her husband. Meanwhile, the missing husband continued prospecting, but as word as Montana's riches spread, the competition for claims increased. Well, you can thank Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo. They just bought me out. Seems like they aimed to buy up the whole territory. Large companies rushed to capitalize on local strikes and eliminate the competition. They'd buy up businesses and all lands surrounding successful claims. Here again is Gail Jenner. 
there was mining going on in various sections of Montana. He did have a claim where he was in competition with other people also setting up claims, and there was a lot of violence that was occurring around him. Mr. Bow. Welcome, gentlemen. What can I do for you? We want to buy your claim. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. Good day. Doesn't look like much is coming. There'll be plenty just as soon as the water comes up. Good day. It'd be a shame if it didn't. Wells Fargo began consolidating its stage lines for new mining towns in Idaho, Utah, and Montana. Rumors of the company going into the mining business make Bowl suspicious. Just days after receiving offers for his claim, the water supply suddenly dried up. His claim was now worthless. Bowles is convinced it's no coincidence. Here's author of the American West, W.C. Jameson. What Wells Fargo did is divert the stream from which Bowles was panning the gold to where he was forced to abandon his gold mine. Many historians believe that this was the moment he set his sight on one of the most powerful companies in the West, Wells Fargo making the company out to be responsible for his misfortune. A hard-working miner and former Union soldier with dreams of striking it rich made a bold decision to extract revenge. In 1874, Bowles left his claim and moved to the cosmopolitan hub of Northern California. Consumed by revenge, Bowles completely broke ties with his family cut himself off from the past and reinvented himself. He moved to San Francisco, all the while nursing this anger, this hatred toward Wells Fargo. In preparation for his revenge, Bowles did his homework. I watched the stages from a second camp, far from my home camp, to ascertain the exact time they passed. I found them to be at the same spot every morning at 7 a.m. All over Northern California, they were shipping lots of gold from one place to another. They had over 3,000 miles of stagecoach roads. It was a big target for thieves. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this riveting story the real story, the story behind the story of Black Bart. And by the way, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. And we had learned that lots of gold was shipping all around this country from place to place. And my goodness, that made those gold carriers ripe targets for highwaymen, that is, bandits. Let's continue with the story of Black Bart. In July 1875, a stagecoach with a Wells Fargo Express box was working its way up a steep grade on the way from Sonora to Copperopolis in the Motherlode country. Just a few miles short of Copperopolis, a hooded figure suddenly jumped from behind a boulder. Put on that box. Please. Well, the demand from this hooded figure was reinforced by a double-barreled shotgun aimed at the stagecoach driver. The robber's head was covered by a flour sack with two holes cut for the eyes, and even his boots couldn't be seen. They were covered by thick socks to avoid leaving tracks. As the driver grabbed the express box, Iwaman yelled an order over his shoulder. If he dares shoot, give him a solid volley, boys! driver glanced up at the hillside behind the highwayman and thought he saw at least a half dozen rifle barrels aimed his way. It's called a Quaker gun trick. Used in the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, it's named for the Quakers, who, like bulls, oppose violence. The trick uses sticks to look like guns and logs to look like cannons to fool the enemy into believing they're facing a force much larger than they actually are. With a real sense of urgency, the driver threw the express box onto the road. The highwayman quickly removed several bags of gold coins. A frightened woman passenger tossed her purse out of the stagecoach and into the road. The highwayman picked it up, bowed, and returned it to her, saying in a deep and resonant voice, Madam, I have no desire of your money. In that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo. I don't know what you're reaching for, friend. Charles has poked sticks through the bushes so that it appears that there could be other guns around. Just give him what he wants. He's got his mask on, he's, he's got a duster on, he's got his gun pointed. He was an enigma. He was a very hard man to figure out. Good day to you, sir. Thank you, Kai. He disappeared into the brush and escaped on foot over 120 miles through rugged terrain, through the mountains, and back to San Francisco. He returned to high society in plain sight, where he developed an alter ego. He called himself Charles Bolton. Bolton's reputation grew as he became known as a successful gold prospector and socialite. Here's Old West historian Chris Entz. Charles Bowles went by Charles Bolton because it sounds very sophisticated. It has a certain dignity associated with it. He is as comfortable living in the wilderness as he is in the city. Yes, sir. Circumstances compelled me. I yielded to the temptation of crime only after enduring severe struggles from which I had no control. 
Following his first robbery, Bowles took odd jobs that pulled him away from the city and gave him access to new targets. He was trying just a little bit of everything. He tried school teaching for a while, which would have been unnatural for him because he was intelligent, he was sharp. <laughs> now let us turn to the case of Summerfield and that notorious bandit, Black Bart. He's incredibly well-read. In addition to Shakespeare and that kind of thing, he also reads the Sacramento Union. And in the Union paper is a story written by an attorney who does make up this character named Bartholomew Graham, or Black Bart. Charles Bowles adopted the name and transformed into highwayman Black Bart. Following Black Bart's first robbery, Wells Fargo detective James Hume was put on the case. Here again is Gail Jenner and historian Marshall Trimble. James Hume chose to become the kind of person who would never quit. He has an obsessive, compulsive kind of desire to make things right. Gentlemen. This is the beginning of this detective period. When there's a robbery, you don't just get out there and look for horse tracks. It gets much more sophisticated. Technology and such is starting to change as to how to track these guys down. And this is what Hume is really adept at. Welcome to school, boy. Hume was one of the great detectives of the Old West. But this Black Bart character had him stumped. Gentlemen, our efforts up to this point have been unacceptable. He's making a mockery of us, and I will not stand for that. Hume begins to put together that this man is quite capable of covering long distances in between the robberies. He knows that it's not a multiple-person job, that this is a, a lone man. Beginning with a second stagecoach robbery, Black Bart would leave behind a verse or two of poetry. Hume, a man as cunning and restless as the bandit himself, read it. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor, and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of... Black Buck. Poet. He's mocking me. He's mocking me! Hume didn't know what to do with witness testimonies. What was his behavior, his demeanor? Did he threaten you or take any of your personal belongings? No, sir, he was polite. Said please and thank you. And that's what's left of the cash box over there. The public had doubts about Detective Hume and Wells Fargo. Hume took it personally. Wells Fargo is putting more and more pressure on James Hume. The newspapers are having a field day. There were lots and lots of articles about who is this Black Bart, and people are ridiculing both James Hume and Wells Fargo. They're becoming a joke, and so they're determined now to try and figure this out, and lots of pressure is coming from lots of different directions. Here's a quote from Hume in the San Francisco Examiner in 1884. I refuse to buy a romanticized image of Black Bart as fabricated by the press. He is a fraud who is Robin Hoodwinking a gullible public. Jim Hume began to piece together a physical description of Black Bart. Bart was armed, but he didn't shoot back, though. Nope. Not his style. 
No horse track. He escapes on foot. As Blackbart stage robberies continued, the price yeah. on his head increased. Wells Fargo offered a $300 reward. State of California chipped in another $300, and the U.S. government $200. The $800 total was really quite a sum back in the 1870s, something like $80,000 today. And when we come back, what happens next? And what a story, by the way. Feels a little bit like The Great Gatsby with a little bit of Jack London in it. It's a thriller. It's an American classic. Never knew the rest of this story, and you're about to hear it. Charles Bowles becomes Charles Bolton. The world, at the time and now, knows him as Black Bart. This is our American stories. The story of Black Bart continues after these messages. And again, to hear all that we do, go to Our American Network. Dot org. That's our American network. Dot org. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. And by the way, we love telling stories about the American West. And not in this particular case, but in so many cases, we use Phil Anschutz's terrific two books, Out Where the West Begins, as a subject and source material for those stories. We've done Samuel Colt's story, Jedediah Smith's, Levi Strauss's, which is a stem winder, and the Coors family, you know, you take for granted Coors beer. Where did it come from? And who are the men and women who got it going? And why Denver? Why Colorado? These people came from Germany. Well, go to ouramericannetwork.org for all that we do and hundreds and hundreds of hours of American storytelling, classic American storytelling are there. When we last left off, Black Bart, well, the price on his head kept going up. Wells Fargo had money on his head. The American government... Lots of other private businesses. Well, there's a reason for it. Black Bart, well, he just kept hitting those stagecoaches. And as he kept hitting them, the price on his head, it just kept going up. And now we return to the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. Black Bart's luck nearly ran out on his 23rd stagecoach robbery. The stage was on its way from Laporte to Oroville when Black Bart blocked its path. Easy, boys. Easy does it. Keep those hands where I can see them. Nice and easy. Would you be so kind as to throw down that box? I'll get it right now for you, sir. Instead, the Wells Fargo guard swung his rifle around and fired. 
Black Bart leaped into the brush and ran for it. They didn't know it, but the bullet fired at Black Bart creased the outlaw's head. A fraction of an inch change in trajectory would have spelled the end for Black Bart. On a Sunday in November 1883, Black Bart's luck finally did run out. Early that morning, a stagecoach pulled out of Sonora bound for Milton. The driver of the stage was a veteran of the run, Raisin McConnell. At Reynolds Ferry on the Stanislaus River, McConnell picked up a passenger, 19-year-old Jimmy Rolleri. Rolleri operated the ferry, but it was still early in the morning, and he thought he might go up the hill a ways and do a little hunting. When the stage began the long climb, Rolleri jumped off with a Winchester rifle in hand. The stage had nearly reached the summit, when a hooded highwayman leaped from the brush and trained a shotgun on McConnell. Throw down that box. I... I can't. Please. Bolt it to the floor. Well, it's lucky for you I brought my tools. Easy does it. We wouldn't want to spook the horses. Now come down off that stage, friend, and start walking and don't stop. McConnell tried to signal for Larry, who was casually walking up the road. Finally, McConnell got his attention. Just then, the highwayman straightened up with a sack full of gold. Larry fired. Highwayman stumbled, but managed to spring into the brush and disappear. McConnell reported the holdup. The local county sheriff, Ben Thorne, and his deputies were soon at the scene of the crime. They found a number of things the highwayman had left behind in his hasty departure. There was a black derby hat, two paper bags containing crackers and sugar, a pair of binoculars, and a handkerchief. Once back in his office, Sheriff Thorne inspected the items left behind at the scene of the robbery. He noticed some badly faded lettering on the handkerchief. He turned the handkerchief over to Wells Fargo detective Jim Hume, who in turn gave the handkerchief to Harry Morris. Hume had hired Morris six months earlier to do nothing but work on the robberies of Black Bart. Morris had recently retired as sheriff of Alameda County, and now he had his own private detective agency. He was one of the great lawmen of the Old West. Fresh sign. When uh, James discovers the handkerchief, he was delighted, and as he examines it, he sees the mark FX07, and he knows this was, in fact, a laundry mark. This man must be found. Hume decides we're going to have to track this laundry mark. Take your men and leave no stone unturned. So they go to 93 different laundries in the San Francisco area. Yes, sir, can I help you? Yes. Is that your mark? Uh, yes, that's our mark. From one of our customers, C.E. Bolton. He's a local gold prospector. Since Hume thought that Black Bart lived in San Francisco, Morris began his investigation there. Now, under the guise of a business proposition, Morris was introduced to Charles Bolton. Bolton looked every inch the mine owner he purported to be. 
He was dressed in an expensive tailored wool suit and a bowler hat. He carried a walking stick, a diamond ring was on one finger, and a heavy gold watch was suspended from a gold chain. He was handsome with deep-set blue eyes. He stood about five foot eight and was ramrod straight. He looked anything but a robber. Morris managed to get Bolton to an office where Jim Hume waited. So word on the street is you're quite the successful gold prospector. Tell me, Mr. Bolton, where are your mines located? Well, if it's one thing I've learned, sir, it's not to disclose too much information to a perfect stranger. <laughs> Mr. Bolton, I'd like you to meet Detective James Hume. Minutes later, a captain from the San Francisco Police Department arrived, took Bolton into custody. At the police station, Bolton was placed under arrest. He feigned astonishment and asked for what possible cause was he being arrested. Hume answered, because you are Black Bart. The infamous highwayman. And poet. I had a premonition that this would happen today. Aren't you the lucky one? Charles Bowles wanted them to know that it was him. And to be able to tease and to play with the people that have been chasing him and trying to get at this, it gave him pleasure. You do want somebody to know. Buckbart pleaded guilty to the last of his robberies. Whereas the said C.E. Bolton is convicted of robbery by his own admission, he is therefore ordered, adjudged, and sentenced to San Quentin, the state prison for the period of seven years. He became a model prisoner. Take him away. And was released in January 1888. After serving a little more than four years, he was then 57 years old. Reporters waited outside for his release. Black Bart, are you going back to your life of robbing stagecoaches? No. I'm giving up my life of crime. Are you gonna go back to writing poetry? Did you hear me, son? I said I'm done committing crimes. <laughs> After being released from San Quentin, Black Bart returned to San Francisco, and there he was offered the opportunity of appearing on stage in a theatrical production. Somebody wanted to take advantage of his notoriety but he refused. Jim Hume had his men shadow Black Bart, but suddenly one day, early in March, 1888, Black Bart gave him the slip. Bowles was a pretty smart guy. It is likely that he knew that, that Hume was following him. Hume perhaps had a hunch that maybe Bowles might return to his nefarious ways. Reports had Black Bart in several different Western states. 
then in Mexico, Canada, Japan, China, and finally Australia. None of these reports, though, was ever confirmed. Black Bart, America's most successful highwayman, had simply disappeared. And what a story. And if you want to hear it again or share it with friends, again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Boy, this story has it all. Guy's comfortable in the wilderness, in the big city. His brother dies early. He blames himself. Tries to make a living honestly. Feels like a big bad business had taken advantage of him. And by the way, we love telling stories about good businesses, but sometimes there are some bad ones. And he felt like Wells Fargo had cheated him out of his stake. And so he was going to take it back. What a story and great work as always, Greg Hengler. And by the way, Black Bart and James Hume reminds me of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Two people joined at the hip forever. And they are. Not sure why this isn't a movie or hasn't been, but it should be. This is Lee Habib. Charles Bolton's story. Charles Knowles' story. Black Bart's story. They're all the same guy. Here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. 